Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast, bringing you brand new guests every single week, honest, open conversations from a broad range of fascinating and inspiring people. On today's episode, we've got a guy who definitely meets both of those criteria. He is the founder and CEO of Gumroad.com, which is an e-commerce website where people can upload and sell digital files of all kinds. This is Sahil Lavingia. Welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are most welcome. So I've given a quick intro there. So why don't you introduce yourself for the audience and listeners, people who don't know you? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So my name is Sahil Lavingia. I started a company called Gumroad eight years ago now. Um, I wanted to sell something I made myself and I thought, yeah, this should exist. It's like too difficult to sell stuff on the internet. It still is, um, but it's easier hopefully now. Um, before that, I was at Pinterest. I was the second employee at Pinterest that just IPO'd for a lot of money. And uh, before that, I was in college. I went to USC uh, for a semester in LA before I dropped out to join Pinterest. So that's, yeah, and I, I was born in New York on Long Island. So you started on this journey like really young, man, like as a, as a teenager, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and I started designing in uh, middle school, I think, and coding in high school. That's yeah. crazy. So what drew you to that path initially? Have you just always been that way minded? Because that's obviously not like a an average an average thing for someone to do, you know, start coding in their teens and then yeah. go and uh, launch a, <laughs> go and launch like a, a full blown, well, go and work for Pinterest, first of all, but then, you know, go off the back of that without, I take it you, you didn't finish college. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was, yeah, just one one term. Wow. Um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, because you know, when you're in it, like you don't really think of it as too unusual because that's like the one. You know, you have like a sample size of one of like this is what people do. Uh, 
but it was definitely getting more common. I think I think for me it was it was a combination of getting into like product design as just like a way to make money to buy Xbox games like as a kid and and then also starting to pay attention to things like TechCrunch and seeing all these sort of like random people from all over the world um sort of like build launch sell things you know all these different products and services and and this is like you know Twitter and Facebook and these things are I mean they're doing well they're all sort of valued pretty pretty well but like they're so young companies and so you can start building stuff on top of these companies because they, they haven't like really like they don't have large enough teams to sort of build all the features that they even need to build. Right. Like this is before Twitter had retweets and replies and any of that stuff. It's they're all sort of like user behaviors that just started developing organically. And so it was just a massive opportunity to like as a pretty terrible coder to build stuff of value, you know, because you have this guaranteed user base. You have all these people that use Twitter that are like pretty dissatisfied. And as a kid, like there are very few professional industries that you can like legally even work in, right? Like if you're a 16 year old kid and you want to make some money, there's not that many options. Tech was one way of, of doing that. And then the other thing is that it's just so accessible. You know, anyone can Google like how to learn to code and within a year or two, like get to a professional level, more than minimum wage at least, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a computer science graduate from Oxford, so I, I should know how to code, but my coding sucks. So <laughs> I, I, I ended up becoming a rapper. <laughs> I was, I was talking to someone the other day, actually. Uh, and she was like, yeah, you know, like sometimes I wish that I took computer science in school because then I know how to code. And I'm like, honestly, like they're not always correlated. <laughs> you can learn to code for fun on the side. Or you can go to co- get a computer science degree and, and come out of it not really knowing. Like just because, you know, it's like, it's just the world is changing so fast that like how do you how do you have teachers that are like well equipped right they're all working professionally right and by the time when they start teaching like five years later all the stuff that they're teaching is like sort of no longer used right so what drew you into coding in the first place i mean was it just something that you thought you'd, you'd randomly try out or like how did that even happen i think it was very financially driven where i started designing stuff right and so i was basically doing freelance design for clients i find I found on the on forums and on like site point marketplace. Like these and just how, like, how old are you at this point? Probably like 14 is my guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 14 or 15. I was not a cool kid, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you so I started doing design work and and I, it's interesting because when I talk to Gumroad creators, like it seems like they've had a similar path. Um, a lot of a lot of them, um, which I'll get into. But basically, like I started doing uh, design work for for people and you know they'd come to me with an idea right and they basically pay me to do the design and then they go hire someone else to, to build the thing and then they'd launch it or do whatever and then you know it, it would be successful or not right and I just was like well if you're paying someone else to do that like I, I can just charge for that like I could probably learn that myself right and like absorb the cost or people would pay me to do everything and I just find a freelance engineer and developer to build it for me you know and, and sort of pay sort of charge a little bit more of a margin on it. And so it was really just like a financially driven uh, sort of decision in the beginning. And then realizing as I did that, that there were like basically what what knowing how to code and design like empowers you to do is to see a problem, uh, typically a problem that I have and be like, I can go fix that problem. You know, like in the course of a weekend, I can go from, man, it would be really cool if there was a website that like allowed me to view like conversations between people on Twitter and then, a weekend later, you know, Monday morning, say, hey, 
there's now a website that I built, you know, that allows people on Twitter to like have basically what Facebook did with wall to walls, which doesn't even really exist anymore. Um, you know, but like basically threaded conversations on, on Twitter. And I just got into this, like this kind of addiction almost where like every couple of weeks I'd come home, you know, from, from school and stuff and be like, I need to like, what can I build? You know, cause everything you build, right. Like you, you, there was like a very simple launch strategy, which is like you, you build the thing, it takes a day or two. And then basically for like eight hours, I would make a list of like every tech blog um, and like every major like Twitter, social media account. And then I basically just spam them all and be like, Hey, I built this thing. Um, so I'd always email like TechCrunch and stuff, Mashable. And like every single time, at least one or two outlets would pick it up and it would get like, you know, 10,000 visitors or whatever. And then eventually, you know, we kind of like die and like kind of establish like a st- stability and equilibrium. Um, and I'd sell it and just move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize at the time, like what I was really doing, which was I was just getting really, really good at building stuff, right? Because I was like the feedback loop. Every couple of weekends, I'd build something, which meant designing it, ideating, designing, shipping, reacting to feedback. And then a month or two later, like selling the thing and like having a new thing, you know? Um, and so it was just like the iterative nature of it and, allowed and you, me to be. And you were just doing this really all by yourself, just solo? Yeah, just solo. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I've, well, I've never even, I've never even heard of that kind of, yeah, such a young age. I mean, that's, uh, that's very peculiar, but it's, it's very <laughs> inspiring. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I hope more people do it because it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things that seems weird. But then when you think about what, what ended up happening with like the iPhone app store, and with just like technology startups in general, that like, it was a very smart business decision, right? But in hindsight, it was just like a nerd, like at home, you know, trying to like connect with people that were similar to him, you know? Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about how you came to set up Gumroad. And then yeah. um, I, I read uh, the Medium article you posted up with some of the some of the difficulties you, you had with it. So it sounds like yeah. you, you know, you had the idea, you built the thing really quickly, and then you got funding pretty quickly, it sounded like, and then kind of just talk us through the stages. Yeah. Yeah. So Gumroad started out similar, similar to what I described, like a weekend project. I had this idea or I, I designed this pencil icon and I wanted to sell it on Twitter and, you know, and just see if I could charge a dollar for it. And it just wasn't really possible. Like I, the, the way that I put it is basically I wanted a lemonade stand. Like I wanted to just like put something really simple out there and all these online solutions were like, you need to create a storefront. Like there's, and I'm like, I just have one thing. Like I don't need like to spend, <laughs> 30 bucks a month and like, you know, have all this infrastructure, check out at to cart, like all this stuff just to like sell the single product. I already have an audience. Like I don't, I don't need foot traffic or anything like that. And so, yeah, I, I, I was like, I can build this. Like this doesn't seem too difficult. Like I have, there's bit.ly, which basically allows you to like sort of send traffic to things and, and get some basic analytics. And then there's Dropbox, which allows you to like upload files and share them for free. Like there's no way there's like the only thing that's missing is like payments infrastructure and so that's how it started was like i was like okay it's going to be bitly with a credit card form in between and so that's what i ended up building and that's why like the gumroad links look the way they do and things is you know i was like okay i can build this like you basically create links you put in an end link and then you charge five bucks and so one weekend i spent um april 2011 i built that launched it monday morning and it got a bunch of traffic um i posted on hacker news and a bunch of people were like this is interesting like there's something behind this idea of like making something super super like how easy can you make it to sell something right like what happens if you do that um 
And so that that's what it was initially. And I honestly didn't do too much with it, but it kind of just like, like in the back head for a long time, because I was like, there's something there's like, every time I talk to someone, and this is like, for me, what I found to be a really good filter of like what I should be doing with my time. But like, every time I talk to someone, like I couldn't help, but like think about Gumroad in the context of that conversation or like find a way to bring it up. You know, like we'd be talking about music and I'd be like, oh yeah, isn't it weird that like the way that the music industry is set up is like in this way. And like, wouldn't it be cool if musicians could sell directly and da, 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 and, 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 uh, and I just couldn't help but do that. And so after maybe like six or nine months, I, I left Pinterest, started Gumroad officially as a company. And then just because I was an early employee at Pinterest, I was a designer and an engineer. I was able to raise money like super fast. And so within... Within like from, I think I left or started raising money in like September, October, and then I ended up closing the round, two rounds, two separate rounds of funding in by February, I believe, or something like that. And so I raised around $8 million from like a bunch of like amazing Silicon Valley investors, credential wise, mm -hmm. like Max Levchin from co-founder of PayPal and Naval and some, some really uh, great venture firms as well. Life was great because I, I really felt like, okay, I, I was on this path that was like pretty peculiar, I think, as you said. Um, but, you know, like I was super young. I raised a bunch of money. I was an early employee at this company that was going to explode and I left to start my own thing. And it, it just felt like like the Truman Show in a way. Like it just felt like too perfect, um, which I'm sure is how probably quite a few people feel sometimes. But um, I just felt like I had to do this because if I wanted to be Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, or one of Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like these people that like all dropped out of school at super young ages, started a company and then became really successful. And that's probably also what allowed me to raise the money, you know, because it, what it did was it allowed VCs to be like, oh, this is that type of person, you know, like gotcha. that's sort of how venture people think a little bit at least. Anyway, so I, so I raised a bunch of money, built a team and things were going pretty well. Like I think from 2012 to 2014-ish, like two or so years, we definitely grew. Like we were growing up and to the right. Um, but in venture, like you just need to be growing at like a pretty insane clip to be sort of fundable, to, to, to keep raising money. Because the way raising money works is you, you raise a bunch of money to get to like an 18-month milestone roughly, right? Mm -hmm. And by the time you get there, you need to be in a place where you can go raise even more money. And then you can use that money to go somewhere else. And you're sort of playing, you're kind of like he, like playing double or nothing, right? Like you're, you're continuously upping the ante in hopes that like you can execute on the milestones that you have mm -hmm. and, and get to, and, 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 and stuff, I don't really, some people like, like really don't like venture and sort of like on venture all the time. Um, I'm not really like that. Like I think venture is awesome and has created some phenomenal companies that just couldn't have been created without, I think that sort of equity model mm -hmm. um but what it does is it means that like your sort of businesses are incentivized to basically become really massive really fast or basically die right yeah. because the way the venture model works is you need one sort of mega hit out of your fund to like return the fund and there's this massive power law and so if you miss out on uber like your your fund is like now worth like six times less than just like that single investment you know mm. um and so they want to make sure that they're trying to create as many sort of opportunities to create Ubers and Googles and Facebooks, uh, you know, and Pinterests, right? Then, then Gumroads and these like these companies that are pretty successful, like they're definitely good and good companies, and and they're creating a lot of value. But if you're a venture fund, like you need you need basically unicorns, right? You need billion dollar companies 
um, to, to, uh, to make the model really, really work for you. And so when Gumroad wasn't that, we just could not raise money. And so that's at that point in 2015, we decided to do a big round of layoffs. Um, and we cut the company down pretty aggressively from 20 people to five. Okay. Um, which we didn't have to, I think, I think we could have done less, but for me, it was like, if we're not going on that venture back path, like, let's not pretend like, let's just do what a bootstrapped basically company would have to do, which is to go purely sustainable. Right. And to get to profitable as soon as possible. Um, we did it in less than a year. Um, and and to and and to just shrink the team so that we weren't really working on new features, we were just working on getting things to an equilibrium that we could sort of rely on. Because at the end of the day, and you know, like I had investors tell me, you know, straight up, like, "Hey, like you should shut this thing down or sell it, and then in a year, like, go start another company." You know, I'll give you money to go start another company. Like, I'll give you more than I did this time around, and like you can try it again. Because it's this whole idea of opportunity cost, right? It's like, why are you working on a thing that's worth $10 million or $15 million if you can go out and like raise more money and try again to make something that's worth a billion dollars? Gotcha. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, it's just the way that, that that world works. And for me, it's not that I was necessarily opposed to it. It was just, I'm working on a startup that is helping a lot of creators get paid, right? Around at that time, $2.5 million a month. And to me, it was just like, could I really just turn that off, right? Like, could I just email creators and be like, sorry, guys, like, you're making, you know, your kids' college funds and your mortgages and your coffees, and sorry, you don't have access to that anymore mm. uh, because I want to be a billionaire, which I, I don't even sort of fault anyone if they decide to make that decision, right? Like, at the end yeah. of the day, loyalty is, is a sort of like the social construct and you can choose to be loyal or not, but at the end of the day, like, Creators are not loyal to Gumroad, right? They could always leave, and so therefore we could always leave. But for me, it just felt like, I don't know, wrong. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe I was just too scared. I think some someone might make the argument that like you should have shut down the company and like you were just being a wimp or something. I would disagree with that. I mean, uh, I think I think loyalty and loyalty and personal ethics and you know that kind of conscious and gut feeling are are very important. You know, that might just yeah. be my my belief system, but I think that if people yeah. If people lose that and people compromise that, certainly at scale, then yeah. that doesn't lead to a very good world, I don't think. That's true. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. You can't, I think you can't really demand it of people, right? Like you have to give people the agency, I think, to decide if they want to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you no, know, I think you're, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. But yeah, so I, so I, I sort of took the hit, went down to five, and then sort of got to profitable and then realized like, even with those five, like no one was there, you know, as a founder, like you still have like a pretty good chunk of the company. So there's sort of like an exit path, maybe, right. Even if you sell the company for $20 million, like there's an out, but with, um, with employees, there really isn't because you don't have more than 2% of the company, you know? Mm -hmm. And so numbers get pretty small. And so everyone was like, yeah, like I'd rather go work on an actual startup and, and try that again. And so that was very amicable, like very, you know, I was like, cool, that's fine. But it, that was really what like sort of got me on this journey of like, what do I want to do? Like if I have the freedom to work, you know, without a team, like where do I want to be? What do I want to spend my time doing? Um, and then on the same lines, like the company continued to grow, you know, and grow actually at a faster rate than it had ever sort of really done. Um, and so it was kind of this weird existential crisis for me because it was, it was like this thing is growing. This is like the beauty of technology 
it, it was growing without a ton of people working on it, right? Like we were had 20 people, then we had five, then we had one. And it like roughly grew at the same rate. And it was both like the worst thing to look at and the best because the worst, it was like, you know, wow, like what impact did we really have on this thing? Yeah. Uh, like maybe it could have been a weekend project and like been the thing, you know, and we could have saved a lot of money yeah, uh, or a lot of other people's money. Yeah. I was going to say, do you, in hindsight, do you think maybe you, I mean, I guess it all, it all happened so fast. I mean, getting yeah. eight, getting eight million dollars within a matter of months from conceiving an idea. Yeah, as a early twenty something year old, I'm I'm presuming. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah I mean that's yeah. Uh, yeah it, cer- it certainly works sometimes, but I think that um, yeah. I think there's always that danger, especially with businesses. Like I don't know too much about the VC world and how everything operates, but I do know that they expect pretty quick returns yeah. and there's that whole kind of fail fast thing. So yeah, I think it can re- work really well when it does work. But I think that for a, a lot of people and companies and organizations, sometimes it's better to do more of that like organic yeah, bootstrapping rather than, you know, getting like a, a ton up front and then chasing so aggressively. It's a bit like when something goes like parabolic in, in, in the stock market or something and, you know, like that's not at some point it's gonna, you know, like it can yeah. go up and up and up, but it's like at some point something's gotta. Yeah. So what totally. have you um what have you learned from that eight year process? What are the big lessons you've sort of taken from it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the big ones is that it's really important to like realize what you're building and for who you're building it because you can't really like when when you see those parabolic things, um, that's typically like a function of like the market demand wanting something so badly. Right. That like this, this thing just started to exist and everyone was like, holy crap, this is like really important and really valuable. Right. You look at Uber, for example, right. Like the, the, the transportation sort of cab system in in San Francisco and other cities was just so bad that this thing came around was super expensive. Right. Uber in the beginning was like minimum, like 25 bucks, like a ride or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it just grew like crazy. You know, it went from nothing to something very, very fast. And, and you're right. Like, I think those parabolic things do eventually taper off. Right. Um, and sometimes in most cases they just break completely because you think you have it. Like you don't really, you think you're parabolic because a certain community is picking you up like crazy. And then you realize that compute, that community is limited in size mm-hmm. and you just like hit the ceiling and explode, you know? Um, and that happens to a lot of companies, right? And so I think with Gumroad, I think it was that where it's like we were building something really valuable. People found a lot of value in it, but like the creative community, like the independent content creation community is still like pretty young, right? Like it's still growing. Um, It's growing pretty fast. But like, even if you look at, you sort of combine Gumroad and Bandcamp and Patreon and some some of these other things um, in sort of digital content sales, right? Like it's still a pretty small market, yeah, right? Like if you compare it to a single Marvel movie, you know? Um, And so I think the power law exists, that same power law sort of exists in content. Um, And if you're not able, and it's very, it has like a very tall sort of head and a very long tail, but a very short tail too, right? Like in, 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 in sort of that area under the curve. And so if you have um, a content, like sort of a, a company sort of trying to enable content creation and monetization, but you're not able to actually capture like the, the fat head of the tail, right? Like you're not able to work with Disney or Fox or any of these people that really are the ones making the majority of the money in content. 
right? If sort of content very broadly, it's very difficult to build a billion dollar company, you know? Um, even if you look at companies like Shopify or MailChimp or these sort of like these brands that have sort of consumer sort of facing um, marketing, it's it's still like if you look at you know these companies like the the massive companies using Shopify are the ones that are really bankrolling Shopify, and it allows for them to go build this tool that everyone else can use as well. But but really like it's 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 a small group of enterprise typically that are that are building and supporting these these companies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, WordPress, Square, Stripe, a lot of these companies are similar. And if you if you don't have that, um, it's like if you it's like if you built Amazon but you could no one could make over ten million dollars selling on Amazon. Like you would just lose, you know? You need the consumer demand that comes with Disney, right? Like you need that. I mean, needing need need is a contextual phrase, right? So you need that to build a huge company. You can totally build a great company like Gumroad is, um, just by serving creators, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that aren't billion billionaires. Um, but you, it's difficult to turn that into a, you know, a billion dollar company on its own accord doing that. Gotcha. So. so- just before we uh, went live, you were telling me that you have now moved from San Francisco to Utah of all yeah. places. So <laughs> tell us a little bit more about that and what was the reason for the move? Because yeah. that sounds like a pretty, very big shift to me. Yeah, it was. I, I like to say Provo is the whitest place I've ever lived. Um, <laughs> also because it snows a lot. In that part of Gumroad's journey where we did the layoffs and we realized like, okay, we're going to get to profitable. Like that's the most important thing. When you do that, you kind of quickly realize like how much of San Francisco is like not built for your, that thing, you know, like San Francisco, it's super expensive. All the social stuff happens sort of around this trajectory of company that I no longer fit into. Um, you know, there's dinner parties, there's house parties, there's investor events, uh, there's barbecues, but there's warriors games, but, but they're not, they're not, and, and none of this is malicious, right? None of it is like, you're no longer cool. Like you're no longer invited to the party. It's more like, well, the, the whole reason all of this social infrastructure exists is to connect founders with employees and employees to founders and, and VCs to new founders and, and, and VCs to employees to convince them to start companies. And, you know, it's like this, this very sort of incestuous community, right? Everyone knows everybody, everyone works with everybody over and over again. And so when you, when you realize like, oh, you're no longer that, like you're not going to raise money in the short term or in the long term, or you're not hiring like crazy or whatever, that, that stuff becomes like, what do you even talk about? You know, everyone's yeah. talking about raising money and hiring. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm just like writing this fantasy novel and like learning to paint. And like, I run Gumroad too. And they're just like, that's weird, dude. Um, <laughs> and uh, it just wasn't like a, a cultural fit, quote unquote, for me anymore. And, and then sort of, also related to that, like Trump had just won the election. This is like November, whatever, 2016, I guess. Yeah, 16. Uh, 16, yeah. And and I just felt like, you know, I'm not, it's, I'm not making like a stance on like whether it was the right move or the wrong move or anything. Like I have my own opinions. But for me, it was, it was more the fact that I was surprised by it. I think, as you said, blindsided, blindsided by it. And to me, like if you're building a product for the world or if you plan to, um, and one of the great things about software is you don't necessarily have to pick like who you're building for. You can just build it and see, right? Like I just felt like that was like a big hole in my mind, right? Because if, if whatever, whatever the percentage was 48% or 50% of people voted for this person in my own country and I didn't really 
even see them, right? Like I didn't even believe that they could do that. Mm. Um, to me, it's like, how could I build a product? I like, I'm sort of starting out with like not understanding what 50% of my potential users think. Um, that shows a high degree of self-awareness and humility, I think. I, I really, I really, yeah, yeah really. Cause a lot of people, I mean, still now it's, it's now 2019 and mm-hmm. um, I, I live in the UK. So, but yeah, it's kind of funny. Cause to me from about like before Trump even won the Republican nomination, yeah. I was saying to people, friends, family here in the UK, I was like, this guy's got a really good shot. And no joke. People were laughing in my face. Like people were, yeah. and, I, and I was like, I have no doubt, you know, it, and it was, you know what? There is a parallel here in the UK because it was really similar with Brexit. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, London is so for example, London and the areas around London in the UK in terms of like socio-political stuff, it's a little bit of a bubble, right? You know, so yeah. someone who lives in London for 10, 15, 20 years, not through necessarily fault of their own, they can easily end up thinking like the whole of the UK thinks yeah. the way that London does. And I'm just like, no, like it doesn't because I'm a musician. I travel up north. I go to the Midlands. I, I'm going all over the country and talking to all these people. And it's like, no, like London's, London is the odd one out, you know, yeah. rather than the other way around. And from yeah. what I've gathered from talking to different people, it does seem like California as a whole, but particularly like, you know, San Francisco, it, yeah. it, it can become like a little bit of an echo chamber. But yeah, so, so tell us a little bit more about that anyway. Yeah. 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 I, I sort of refer to it. Yeah. It's like a bubble, right? Like you're sort of just exposed to the, to the people in your, in your sort of like direct um, sort of vicinity. And it's, it's very difficult to escape it. And when you do escape it, like I thought I was being open-minded, right? Like I would turn on Fox news and stuff. And like the, the problem is what you're doing is you're, you're, is you're just like getting like a peephole into a different point of view. Mm. You're getting like the most extreme version of it. Right. Um, because like the, the boring stuff, in that and and really the reason why they think like that is not because of what's discussed on Fox News. That's like the that's like watching like WWE and thinking that's why people watch, you know, it's just like not yeah. like the it's the it's the entertainment version, right? It's like the John Oliver sort of version of liberalism. Like you don't watch John Oliver and be like, that's why Democrats think the way they do. Hopefully, some people might say that. Yeah. But that's not really true. It's like these sort of more nuanced things that you experience day to day that aren't interesting enough to like ever be newsworthy. And, and so, so I just felt like I had to leave. And, and so I moved to Provo, Utah and it went from like, I think, I think Trump won something like 9% of the vote in, in San Francisco, like not, less than one out of 10. Yeah. And then, and that's everybody in San Francisco. Right. And then <laughs> like, that's bonkers to me. Yeah. yeah that's funny. It's so low. Um, and then in, uh, in Provo, Hillary won 13% of the vote. Oh wow! So it was almost like a direct switch. Um, Is that what you based it on? No, yeah. <laughs> I, I would have been. It, it turned out it literally was like it's. I went from like I, I don't know if San Francisco was like the most liberal, but it's up there. I do think. Um, so. I do and think Provo that. is actually the most conservative. And in, in, if you look at voting, it's the most conservative because it's super religious. And that's the other, that's the other thing I didn't really understand. Right? Like I grew up like sort of technically raised Muslim, but like not super practicing or anything like that. And like growing up abroad and then being in New York and, and, and then LA and San Francisco, like you don't, not only do you not have a lot of exposure to like conservatism or, or anything like that, but you also don't have any exposure to religion mm. and like sort of like orthodox religion, which America is still quite orthodox Christian, right? Like mm-hmm. there's still, 
70%, I think, of Americans go to church regularly. Um, and so to me, it was also like trying to understand that, right? And some people have family members, they can go home for Christmas and like they totally are like, I'm surrounded by Trump supporters or whatever. Um, <laughs> for me, it's like I go home and it's like my parents are more liberal than I am, you know, like it's not uh, my friends are more liberal, et cetera. So like, where's your, where's your family um, originally from? Like, what's the, yeah, they're in Mumbai or they were, they were, they're from Mumbai. They're in Singapore now, but yeah, they're, okay. they're all from uh, sort of that area, Bombay area. Okay, cool. Um, in India, and they immigrated to uh, the U.S. to New York to get their master's degrees, and then okay. I was I was born, uh, yeah, on Long Island. But yeah, it was just you know like living here and like realizing like, wow, like people are not crazy, you know, like there's this caricature, and I'm sure if you sent like a super whatever conservative person to San Francisco, they'd be like, you guys are insane, like you just love homeless people and poop on the street and. Uh, <laughs> And like orgies, or I don't even know, right? Like what picture <laughs> of uh, San Francisco is at this point. But then you realize, like, oh no, it's actually pretty complicated. And I think that's like an important thing is like you kind of go wherever you go. And it's like life is not simple. Like life is pretty complicated. And people typically have reasons for their belief system. That's not just like I was raised in this spot. You know, I mean, that's part of it, but, but you, but, but it's deeper than that, right? It's like, mm-hmm. It's, it's like the size of the city and the infrastructure of the city and the geography and the way the church is set up and the, and the way the different support networks are set up that like enable a sort of a type of government. Like the, typically the government came out of the community, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we think of it like kind of like the opposite. Like we have a certain community, like what is the right government for it to manage that? But, but, but government has always been historically like sort of like a, an output of the people. Um, Right, like for the people or we the people or whatever, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of this weird thing where we've 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 come to us like a point in society where like we're like we're trying to problem solve with the government, like instead of I feel like the other way around. I think that I think if I had to pick like one insight from the move, it's like and, and I see it on Twitter all the time. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to come on the show too, just to like get to know you better and stuff, because I think like in general what Twitter does is it sort of like puts everyone in the same place if they want to be right. Like no matter where they're from and what ends up happening, I think is you have this disconnect because like certain words that get used in San Francisco mean something very different. If you use the same words in Provo, Utah, right? Okay. Give me an example. So, yeah. So a good example of this I think is, um, is racism, right? So to say like, okay, you're being racist. Like in San Francisco, if I said, hey, that was a pretty racist thing to say, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, what did I do? Like, what did I say um, that, that was racist? Like, because it's not like, a, it's not like an attack on like your, on your person. It's just like, hey, this thing that you said was like, not the cool, like you said, you didn't even know you were saying it. It wasn't even an intention thing. It was a behavior thing. For example, the, the example I use in this, in this essay I wrote was a, marijuana legalization right like marijuana legalization in america is often or like the the illegalization the criminalization of it um means that you can be put in jail for it right and 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 often cops will put black people in jail for it at a higher rate than white people um and there are a lot of reasons i mean you can come up with reasons for that right like you can say oh like typically uh police officers are going to be patrolling poor neighborhoods or more crime-ridden neighborhoods or, or whatever, um, some people will say it's pure racism. Cops are just being completely racist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the answer is probably like most things, like somewhere in the gray area. It's um, probably a combination of many things. 
So, so in San Francisco, a lot of this is sort of understood, maybe with a little bit more bent towards cops are racist, mm-hmm. so that I could sort of say something like, hey, yeah, I think like if, if you support keeping marijuana illegal, like that's a racist thing to do. Like it's just racist. And most people, what I'm doing is I'm simplifying, right? Like I'm using yeah. one word to represent a, many th- a, a lot of concepts. But I think in San Francisco, those concepts are so universal that like it, it, people are like, yeah, okay. But in Provo... <laughs> If I said, <laughs> I, I see where this is going. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, I think like marijuana, uh, sort of, I support it because I'm not a racist, basically, right? And then some, someone was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would have been, I would have been like that guy there. I would have been like, yeah. Well, <laughs> the, and the, the crazy thing, and, and, and it's so different, and, you know, because in, in, on Twitter, if this happened, you just get angry or you block them or, you know, it would, it would not typically go anywhere, right? Yeah. Um, whereas in person, it was a friend of mine I was talking to. It wasn't even like a sort of a political discussion. It was just like a thing that I said. And it was like, he was surprised. And I was surprised that he was surprised. Like I was just like, I couldn't think anything else. Because it was just obviously racist, you know? Um, and so that was like a big realization that I had. And, and this goes for like abortion, gun control, taxes, government intervention white privilege, the gender gap. Um, the gender gap is, is, a, is a great one, I think a great example too. Um, but you know, it's just people typically when they say, when they, it's just so few words, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and on Twitter, when there's literally a word, sort of a character limit, you start using shorthand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, you get two people in a room and you're like, okay, tell me what you think gender, the gender gap is, right? Or white privilege or something. And then they say totally two separate things. And then you're like, well, obviously you guys are going to not get along because then you go on the internet and you just use these two terms and you're disagreeing with each other, not really realizing that you're saying like the water is blue. You know, it's just like your, your rhetoric, your, your dictionaries is so different. Yeah. Um, Let me jump in here. Have you ever read, um, have you read a book called the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, if if you, if you hadn't, I was going to say that sounds like a book that would be right up your alley. Yeah, no, totally. It was, it's funny. It's like the most recommended book in Provo. People love that book here. I don't know. what. Oh, really? it is. Yeah, it, yeah. It, is, it is interesting because it, it did give me a lot of, um, it yeah. did give me a lot of insights to you follow me on Twitter. I'm a very, I'm a very outspoken dude. Totally. And, um, I have had times where I'm having a, you know, a discussion or a debate or something with someone and on most things, like most of the time, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at empathizing with other positions, but like, there are just certain things where I just feel like, you know, it's just, it's just going like that. And you're, you're just like, how, how, how are people not mm-hmm. seeing eye to eye? Like so much. It's, it's almost like, um, I think one great thing, well, you know, I mean, uh, I think Trump is doing a good job in general. I don't live in the U S but I think he's doing a good job. But, um, one thing, one cool thing I think that came out of the 2016 election is I think it like tore, I think it tore a fabric in a lot of people's reality. You said it yourself. I think that's what, that's kind of what happened to you. People thought the world was one way and everybody was kind of one way and this thing was one way. And then by him winning for the people who weren't expecting it, which was yeah. a pretty good chunk, yeah, it, it just kind of created like some sort of system error. And yeah. I, think, I think, yeah, you know, and I think, I think for people yeah. who, like yourself who have that humility and curiosity to be like, okay, wait, well, you know, you have the people who are just like, oh, well, it's just because I'm right and everyone else is wrong and everyone else yeah. is 
everyone who voted for him is racist. Like people say ridiculous stuff like that. And I'm just like, seriously, like I would have voted for him. And I'm, I'm clearly like a black guy. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's obviously not that simple. Right. You've got lots of, you've got black people out there, Indian people out there wearing MAGA hats. So it's like, it's, yeah. it's clearly not that simple. Um, yeah. But you know, I think uh, people, people don't like being wrong, but I think it's important. Like, I think it's amazing what you did with moving to Utah. Cause that's like, okay, actually, I don't understand half the people in my country. So why, why don't I, why don't I go and talk to them? Yeah. See what's going on. And the way I always put it is look, ultimately, regardless of uh, political differences, social differences and whatever, I always think firstly, like people have far more in common than they have. That's different. People are always going to focus on the differences, but you know, there's way more stuff we have in common than we have. That's different. And then secondly, I mean, America is a big country. You got what, like 350 million people there. So like yeah. ultimately, you're going to all have to live together. So yeah. if half of the country hates the other half of the country, and then the other half hates the other half, and then that means like everyone almost hates everyone, then yeah. it's just like, well, that's not that's not going to be a good long term, sustainable, yeah. happy place. You don't want to be walking down the street and yeah. you know seeing re- seeing the red team and the blue team rather right. than sort of just seeing oh, no, that's... seeing people. Yeah, yeah. I think it's funny because in you know in San Francisco there is this like idea that like. Like San Francisco is a very curious place in general. Like on like, I have friends that will like get super into math or like shipping containers or like just random crap, right? Um, and there's this sort of like very like sort of intellectual vibe, right? Um, but then on certain things, like I, I, it seems like to me, like there's just like this. I can't imagine why people would vote for Trump. And then you're kind of waiting, like for some, like for like okay, that therefore I'm going to go read this book. Because that's what I did. <laughs> that's what I did because of, uh, you know, about, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, right? Like hot air balloons or something. But then there's just, some, often there isn't that. Like there is this kind of idea that there's like, we're very open-minded, but like on these things, we're not open-minded at all. Mm. Um, sometimes like there's merit to that, I think to a degree, right? Like for example, if someone walks up to me and says like, you know, I support, like I wish, I'm glad the Holocaust happened or whatever, 9-11 happened or something. I'm like, I don't really know what I would do to like, like, I don't know if I'd be open-minded about that. I'd probably just be like, sorry, like, I guess you're entitled to your opinion. I think that's weird. Uh, so, you know, everyone has their limits, right, on 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 intolerance or whatever, right? Everyone is intolerable intolerance to some degree, right? But, but yeah, I think, I think, in, for, I think with something as major as someone being president of like the most, you know, like the, basically the most powerful person on planet Earth, mm. right? Like, even if you don't want to be open-minded about it, like, even if you're convinced that like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it doesn't matter because he's the one in power, you know? And if you oh, want to win. And the thing is, it has to make sense because you can't have, how many people voted for him? Was it 40 million? Something, 60 million. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that in itself means it has to make sense. Yeah. You, you it, know what I mean? Like you, you can't have 60 yeah. million people, plenty of whom, by the way, voted for Obama previously. Yeah. Um, I've interviewed a guy on my podcast who wrote an entire book about that whole phenomenon. You know, that that means that, well, it has to make sense. You can choose whether or not you want to choose to understand it. If any huge chunk of the population believes in something or thinks a certain way, there has to be, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily right according to, you know, my views or perception or whatever, but there has to be some, you know, it's not like, it's not like all those people are just dumb, right? It's not, it's not that, it's not that simple. Yeah. So there's gotta be something. It doesn't matter, you know, like, it's just like, it doesn't, you know, you could make an argument, I think, that, like, I don't know, maybe probably not in this case, but in other cases, and 
in the history of, you know, like slavery right in America, like most people are wrong. Yeah. Sort of, but it still doesn't matter because it's just what it, it's just what it is, right? Like, and you just have to. For me, it was just like I need the personal growth out of it. Like, I just need to learn. Yeah. Um, and it's like even I mean, like, there's plenty to learn from. I don't know, like starfish, you know. So it's like we don't think that starfish are correct or better than us or anything, but there's still stuff to learn. So even if you have like a very condescending view, there's still stuff to learn. Like, there's always stuff to learn, in my view. Um, and even purely for the selfish reason of like, I can go build a company that, you know, profits off of these people because I understand them better. You know, I don't, I don't think like that, but I think there's like sort of, even, I, I, I'm like, there's even a selfish framing to this that would justify it, you know? But I think you're right. You know, the other thing is like, you know, that you talk about that sort of the, the parabolic curve that breaks sometimes that, I mean, that's kind of like what, you know, on a macro scale, right? Like that's kind of what's happened to Brexit, right? With Brexit, I think. And with, uh, America, I think you could argue, um, or other places, right? Like you basically have this like insane growth, right? Basically exponential, right? And then at some point, the infrastructure that has sort of tried to sustain it, um, and you could argue an unsustainable way, um, you know, with the EU and some of their regulations and what have you, um, at some point it's going to break, right? At some point, everything does like, you know, like the, the Notre Dame, you know, like at some point things go away, right? Like nothing is permanent. And so, yeah, it's just like, yeah, of course things are going to happen that make, you know, that feel like the world is ending, but it's really just like what happens, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, like for example, black lives matter. Like there's nothing factually wrong with that statement, but I can see now living in Provo, while where where like some some white dude is like why well that that just seems like a weird statement you know like obviously they matter why are you saying that you must have some something against white people you know there's this whereas like in san francisco there's like zero question why you know it's like oh obviously black lives matter that's great thanks for saying that you know because of these other things in our history that sort of show that that people didn't believe that it's cool that you're like expressing it or whatever you know yeah well, um, it's, it's, it's the, it's the, see, this is the interesting thing with like the sort of schism with more liberal and more conservative worldviews is because, yeah. you know, so to me, like, I don't like the Black Lives Matter movement, period. Obviously, I believe that Black Lives Matter. I believe, I believe, <laughs> I believe that statement. I believe, I believe all lives matter. Like, quite literally, I believe all lives matter. Me too. But I think that it's the, I'm imagining that what those people in Utah think, because this is also, how it can often come across to me is that it's the it's the condescension yeah condescension it's almost like by saying that it's it's a bit of an affront to someone who obviously like you know someone who's a decent person who doesn't deem themselves to be to have a, a racist bone in their body if you're there like pushing them to them you know black lives matter they're like yeah like i, I know so why it's kind of like it's based on an assumption that like i didn't already know that or something so why are yeah. you pushing that to me it would be like um yeah. i'll tell you i'll tell you a good example it's a little bit like when the vast majority of guys are decent guys and are not criminals right so when people start making when people start talking about things like uh like rape culture or uh toxic masculinity or you know some of these ideas or or this idea that like men need to be men need to be taught more about consent and all this stuff like the, the average guy is like wait like i I'm not that dude. So like, you don't need to teach me. You don't need to like sit me down in a class and teach me not to like rape or not to sexually assault people. It's like that that's offensive that you almost think I need that. You, you got to see what I mean. So I think that's how 
I think to, some people don't get that that's how it comes across to a lot of people. Yeah, no, it's, when people I get upset by it, it's it's that. Yeah, I think I no, I think that makes sense. I think the condescension stuff is is super real. You know, um, I actually had this like pretty conservative friend, and and he he said it really well. Liberal people are in general smarter, but they're also mean. And like conservative people in general, and he's conservative. He's like are typically not as smart, but they're also way nicer. You know, so it's just like you have these. What it what it creates is you have these liberals that I think on many issues, um, you know, are sort of taking the right stance or like are taking the sort of the more educated one at least, and the more you're, nuanced. You're, you're, see, this is coming across very condescending to me now. But I mean, I believe it, right? But but then but, but I think there's a way to do it that just hopefully doesn't come across as. Like I, I know conservatives that are way smarter than liberals, than many liberals, and I know some liberals that are, you know, smarter than. Conservatives. It definitely goes both ways. I think the problem in, in general is when you simplify any anything to a group, inherently you're going to have some condescension in there, right? Yeah. Because, like for example, if you said like, uh, like all Muslims are terrorists, right? Like, I'd be, I'd be like, I'm not Muslim, but a lot of my family is, right? I'd be like, that's a stupid thing to say, yeah. right? But I think that one, and, and this goes back, I think a little bit to like this, this sort of the disconnect and the sort of the different dictionaries that people use on Twitter is that often I think when, 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 uh, when, when someone says something in this sort of absolute basis, like the, the meaning is skewed, right? So for example, if I said like, people are stupid, like just people are dumb. Most people would be like, yeah, people are stupid because what they mean is like some people are stupid or, or like, that's what they would take, right? Like people do stupid things. We all do stupid things or whatever. But then if I said like white people are stupid, then people kind of, that's a very, has a very different, yeah. what all I'm doing is I'm actually reducing the amount of people that are stupid. <laughs> I've but taken, means, but, but that means you're targeting more, but that exactly. That means I'm targeting more. And so it's kind of this interesting, uh, in, in the book, thinking fast and slow, this guy, I think his name is like Daniel Kamen or something. He talks about this idea in, in, in terms of like picking cho- of choices Mm-hmm. And decisions where people typically, if I'm like name, like name, like a, uh, a woman CEO, you might have trouble doing that. But then if I get more specific, if, if I say like a woman tech CEO, who's blonde, mm-hmm. you're actually faster at picking a, picking a, a right answer because you're scoping it out. And I think that, I think the same thing happens with targeting where people feel more attacked, the more specific the, de- the definition is, even though like the intention of the person may be just as broad, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I think, I think like toxic masculinity is, is, is fascinating. Um, like I definitely believe there are components of, of our culture that lead to like bad decisions being made probably by everybody, um, in general, but sort of men typically have more testosterone to like execute on that. You know, to me, the question is not necessary. Like does toxic masculinity exist or not? Um, it's more the question of like, how do we fix the problem? Like, if you believe there's a problem, like, what is the problem? And like, how do we, how do we focus on the solution to the problem? Um, Cause that's the part that I think living in Provo, especially like I t- definitely was on that train for a long time, like the gender gap, et cetera. But like when you typically speak about something like the gender gap, even if it's, if, if you've thought it through and you see the data and you, and, and typically the gender gap is not as simple as like women are getting paid less. Like there's a lot of different sort of, you know, hundreds of factors there's a lot of factors and you can break it out and you can be like, Oh, it's actually like, if you take out sort of child, you know, if you, if you say single men and single women, it's actually the data looks very different. But the problem is on Twitter, you just say the gender gap and then liberals 
or whoever can say, oh, yeah, I see that. And then conservatives are like, there's no way in hell that makes no sense in a free market economy. Whereas really what you're doing is you're saying, actually, what like paternal and versus, you know, paternal maternity leave is 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 causing blah, 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 whatever. And in, in the UK, you know, it's actually probably a lot better just because of stuff like, you know, the, the way that that system is built. Um, not better in it holistically, but better in that specific thing, I think. Um, but I think that's what sometimes gets lost, right? And then you end up with this argument about like, is the gender gap real or not? It's, you know, and then the conservative is just like, that's stupid. Like that, and I, I would argue probably <laughs> on both, or I'm like, I can see some of the, some of the dimensions and some of what's going into it. Mm. But then also I think it's, it's, it's not a really efficient dialogue anyways. You know, yeah, even I if- think, I think the, the problem with a lot of these terms is the terms- themselves are the terms need more nuance yes okay, so if someone's talking to me and yeah. someone mentions the gender pay gap i'm gonna roll my eyes at them and i'm gonna yeah. just be like dude like, like seriously like a, this is the this is yeah. the, this is the dead zombie horse that just just won't stay down like <laughs> you know i'm there you know I've, i don't know how many times I've, I've sort of had to explain it to people um yeah. and then because because you kind of you kind of see it across the board so i think with all these terms and then you know, with something like toxic masculinity, again, it has this insinuation that yeah. this is somehow directly related to masculinity. And often when people actually break it down a little and I'm like, okay, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah. Oftentimes the things they say sound more like a lack of masculinity to me. It doesn't sound like, it doesn't, yeah. it's not sounding like, you know, some aspects might be, you know, hyper masculinity where someone just wants to go out and try to be like, you know, this, this big gangster dude. And as a result, they become very violent or whatever. But I think the problem is that it it blurs the line between toxic behavior and masculinity, which are two very different things. I think masculinity is a wonderful, virtuous thing that we need more of in society. And I think toxic behavior is something we want less of. But when someone puts them together in this kind of phrase and says toxic masculinity, it unsubtly implies that there's something inherently wrong with being masculine and that, that that's some kind of pathology. And you And then you see it in actual society when people are like, oh, you know, boys need to be raised more like girls or this certain natural boy behavior needs to be needs to be dealt with or whatever and it's like no nobody wants a generation of crazy young men who are going to just go do crazy things and harm other people like no nobody wants that nobody wants that but i don't think that the way forward on that is to make masculinity itself just like if just like if someone were to make a phrase toxic femininity right and you were to, to tie Right. There are there are negative behavioral traits that are more common amongst females than there are amongst males. But I would never say something like toxic femininity because that that blurs it all too much to, to the stage where it's it's making it sound like there's something just wrong with being a woman or there's something wrong with feminine with femininity. And it's like, no, there isn't. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the term. I think that the terminology is not productive, in my personal opinion. I would agree with that. Definitely, regardless of anything, it is not productive, right? Well, I think that I think that dialogue is so important. That's one of the main reasons I wanted to start this podcast is because yeah, you know, I, I love Twitter. I like social media, but I'm I'm someone who's always having like deep conversations in real life. Like I can't go a day without yeah. having like a deep conversation, and I think that's what's really important because you know, in terms of what you were saying about things splitting off into red and blue. You know, I think in in some ways that can work and everyone can kind of have things in their way and be happy. But the way I look at it is, um, you know, I, I try not to politically label myself as liberal or conservative. Like I know 
technically if I if I do like a political compass test, I'm like in the I'm like in the bottom right quadrant. So I'm kind of like right leaning libertarian. But ultimately, these positions, especially as in fact, the further the less centered people become, right? If you take someone who's very left or you take someone who's very right, they have their blind spots are bigger. So yep. you need yep. you need that kind of balance, right? If you've got someone who's very right, they're quite unlikely to recognize anything in the system or structure that might need changing, right? They might not be like, likely to see that person or those people at the bottom who actually genuinely need some kind of help, right? Yeah. But then if yeah. you take someone who's like very left, they mm -hmm. might be, their blind spot might be just some of the general workings of like free market economics. Or the fact that not everyone who's, you know, you've got people who have this idea that everyone who is a billionaire or everyone who is a millionaire, that they somehow acquired it by taking from, by, by yeah. like stealing from, you know, and it's like, no, that's, that's a blind spot. That's not actually how it works. So if, if you can get yeah. these people together and actually have a conversation and you can be like, okay, wait, so this is, this is why, again, it's why I don't like general ideas like, uh, systemic or institutional racism or sexism or whatever and these terms generally annoy conservative minded people because yeah. they're not specific enough it's like if you can tell me what what policy or what's what yeah. law or which institution or what individual is being racist then yeah. we can we can do something about that everyone wants to do something about that if you're just like generally like just institutional racism like period and that that's the that's the yeah. sentence that i'm like well what am i supposed to what, what are we supposed to do with that yeah, you, know, you, like you, you might be right to a degree, but but what do yeah. we what do we do here? I think that's reasonable. Yeah, I mean, I agree with going back to the gender gap. I think that's a great one, right? Which is like, for me, the, if if you're having a debate on like is the gender gap real or not, that's mostly a waste of time. I think what you could do is say, hey, um, because of all of these things, I would probably sort of if I had to pick, I would say the gender gap is more real than not. For example, I'm not saying I'm just saying that's you know yeah, it, yeah. for that type of person. Well, the, to me, the better answer would be like, okay, this specific policy, right? Like uh, paid family leave for, for mothers and for, for all parents um, for four weeks in America are paid for by blah, 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 whatever it is, right? I, I don't know. Because I think the other thing that people forget with politics is like the money, like all this stuff costs stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's not free. It's not just like we can go do all these things. Because um, then the debate can be like, cool, like let's debate, like does this policy make sense or not, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, what you're doing is just you're just sort of like echoing like a very like emotional resonance. Exactly. Right? And it's like, sure, I'm and I might be pro-life or pro-choice, but like what 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 you're saying is nothing, right? Because because you're not you're not taking a specific policy and saying like, do I would I vote for this or not? Would would I want this in place or not? There are a lot of these things where I would probably identify just for simplicity's sake or for like this the efficiency of an introduction to say mm -hmm. I'm this this and this. But then you'd have to show me a policy, and I probably looking at the thing wouldn't even be able to make a decision, frankly, because I don't know enough of the implications of it, you know. And I've had lots of conversations with conservatives that are like, you know, here's a plan that normal, like a lot of sort of liberal people recommend to solve, you know, this this thing, um, whatever it is, right? Um, income inequality or abortion or something like that, and then I, or gun controls, you know, sort of a very prominent one, especially in Utah, and then. And they're like, this is why I don't agree with it. Like, and they'll yeah. sort of step by step go through it. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Like you sort of took it and you've you're sort of like this thing that I sort of would have agreed with just because it supports, you know, my sort of emotional, like sort of my basic identity. 
yeah. uh, markers, right? Um, but then when you sort of outline it, you're like, it's, you know, the, the budgeting for this doesn't really make sense or like this law is really unfair to this group of people or like you haven't really thought about sort of the mentally ill that would be sort of aggregated here or whatever it is, you know? And then I'm like, okay, sure. I, now now I, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that maybe that wasn't the right answer. Like we're now closer to getting to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, sorry to jump in, man. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I mean, I think maybe not in everything, yeah. but on, on a high level, most people kind of want the same thing. Yeah. It's just it's the debate, crazy. the debate is about how to get yeah. there. There aren't, there aren't that many people who certainly in their own brain are campaigning to make the country worse. You know, like, I, <laughs> right? I don't think there's that many people who get into, get into politics yeah. or become mayors or, and they're like, yeah. all right, my goal is to just like, I want to, I just want to make stuff worse. It's like, sometimes they, yeah. they have terrible ideas and they execute yeah. them and it makes everything far worse. Yeah. But, you know, I, I like to imagine that most people's intentions are good, but I think by, you know, we're, we, we've all got our own biases. We've all yeah. got our own experiences. We've all lived yeah. very different lives, have different ideas. So I think the best things, yeah, bring them to the table. And if, if people can avoid, avoid the rhetoric and the ad hominem attacks and just yeah. trying to denigrate other people and instead be like, okay, well, Okay, let's talk. Let's talk about income tax. Okay, like, yeah. Let's, okay, this yeah. person here, this person here thinks the billionaires should be taxed at eighty percent. Okay, this person yeah. here thinks that, that you know, like, okay, let's let's talk this over. I think that, and the problem, I think the problem you'll run into with that is that you will realize that a lot of the reason people participate in those first discussions mm. um, is for entertainment, and then when they realize, <laughs> you know, and I think the minute you are like, okay, let's talk about the income tax, everyone's like. I'm good. (laughs) Like a lot of it is like, you know, it's like watching sports, right? It's like you support like a team and and, and no, no logical argument is really going to be like, Oh yeah, I should now support Arsenal instead of Chelsea. Right. Like you're just like, no, I don't. It's, it's purely based on these like different things that, you know, this, your family or your friends or your community or whatever. Yeah. And Um, personality, personality too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I do think that that is one of the things I think liberals are really sort of going back to the condescension. I think that that I think in general, conservatives are better about implying things that are like not evil. Right. Like I think malice, like a lot of conservatives might say something like AOC is really stupid or whatever, but I don't think they'll say she's evil. Right. As much. I'm sure some people do. Right. Yeah. But 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 I, I don't think but I think liberals have a, a higher tendency for whatever reason to say. Trump is evil or Betsy DeVos is evil or what have you to whatever name. Right. And I just don't, I don't really like, I don't know if I, I, I haven't even, I don't know if I, I shouldn't believe it. Right. But it's like so hard for me not to, because it's like the thing that I've been told for so long. Mm-hmm. I just, even now I'm like struggling to say it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, but, well, they have shown that, um, I mean, they have, there are studies that have been done that conservatives understand liberals better than liberals understand yeah. conservatives in general. Yeah. I think so. that's true. I would, I would not disagree with that. And it's, yeah, it's just like the, 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 and a part of it, I think is the, the Christian stuff too, right? Because I think a Christian has like a, a, just like a more deeper understanding of like what sin is and the implications of sin on this very like cosmic level mm-hmm. that they're like, dude, you would not sin on purpose. Like you don't understand <laughs> how stupid that is, you know? Um, and, and most of these, people in, in leadership positions on the right are typically quite Christian. Right. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's evil. They're both trying to improve. They're trying to get us to a better place where like, we're, you know, 
people are being taxed less for more for more goods, ideally, yeah. right? But I don't think billionaires are evil, personally. Like I don't think. Of course, well, of course. Not. I mean, I, I, an, an evil billionaire is evil, but <laughs> like you're, you're I, not. I, I don't. I don't think Bill Gates is evil. Like you yeah. know, he. I think he's a he's a good guy who happened to make a ton of money. I, I don't think. In fact, I think it's probably quite hard to become a billionaire by being evil. Like some people might disagree with that, but you know, to make a ton of money, you have to help a lot of people unless you're going to be a criminal, right? You've got to provide a lot of value to a big number of people to make that much money. So even if you did it for purely selfish gain, you've yeah. probably done a whole lot of good in the in the pros. Like I don't know how many people Microsoft employs. I don't know how many copies of Windows they've sold, but yeah. you know, He's impacted a billion people and made their lives better. I, I couldn't be doing this without stuff Bill Gates made. Bill Gates is definitely not evil. <laughs> yeah, man. All right, bro. Just um, I'm just looking at I'm just looking at the time for the for the sake yeah. of the um for the sake of the podcast. I mean, we if you if you if you want, we can chat a little bit a little bit after it. But I yeah. wanted to find out a little bit more about what you've um. So what have you got? What have you got coming up next? Or what are your yeah future plans? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff just on the Gumroad side that I'm excited about. I'm, uh, we're working on discovery. So we're launching like a full marketplace and like allowing creators to sort of gain a new audience. I think the, there's like two, there's two things that creators need to do. Typically there's like sell products and then there's like build the audience. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think the more that we can do on that, we, we got, we got really good at allowing people to sell stuff. And so it's like, if, can we do a really good job of like actually helping people grow their audiences as well? And then after that, we're going to make a really big push on, sort of launching our own Patreon competitor, basically. Okay. Uh, and so I think it's just a sort of speaking of markets, right? I think it's just a much larger market for us. And I think we can do a really good job. And that and that's the only reason we do it. Like, I'm not interested in just like cloning people for the sake of it, but because we sort of genuinely believe we can do a better job, you know, just in case Patreon implodes or, you know, struggles, like there's a, there's an option for creators there. That's the stuff. Awesome, man. Well, you're, you're a smart dude and you got, you got plenty of time. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Uh, I know that whatever you go on to do in the future, I mean, I'm very massively impressed by what you've already done to be quite frank. Like, I think it's, it's phenomenal. It's exceptional. So I'm really excited to see where it goes from here. Awesome. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you having me on. It was super fun. Awesome, man. And where can people find you online? Uh, Twitter is probably the best place. My handle is at SHL. Um, and that's yeah, that's that's by far the best place to contact me. Send me a DM. My DMs are open. If you profoundly disagree with anything I've said on this, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, send all hate mail at SNL on Twitter. <laughs> awesome, man! Thank you so much for joining the show. This is Real Talk with Zuby. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.